I hope you've got a Bible with you tonight. Uh, if you do, <clears throat> go ahead and take it and turn with me to uh, the book of Genesis. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 14. And uh, tonight I want us to pick back up where we last left off in our study of the life of Abraham. And Abraham is a man in Scripture who illustrates what it means to walk by faith rather than by sight. And really from the earliest uh, chapters in Genesis where we're introduced to his life, over the past few weeks I've tried to show you how faith uh, grows largely through how we respond to the trials that come our way in life. And that's something that we see vividly illustrated in the life of Abram. Uh, We've already seen how he's a man who's experienced his share of trials and setbacks, but those only serve to strengthen his faith. God used those adversities uh, and hardships in his life uh, to stretch his faith and to make him into the man that God wanted him to be. Now, you know that the call of God on his life brought him from Ur of the Chaldees to the land of Canaan. And after a brief stay in Egypt, which proved to be the greatest test of his faith up until this point in his life, uh, Abram returns to the place where he had been at the first. And in Genesis chapter 13, uh, last week we read of the conflict that emerged between his herdsmen and the herdsmen of his nephew Lot And really, in a great show of humility and faith, Abram allows Lot to make the choice uh, about where he wanted to live. And so in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 13, the Bible says Lot lifted up his eyes. He saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered. It reminded him of what he saw while in Egypt. And so Lot chose the best for himself. And the Bible says that he moved his tent as far as Sodom, which as we'll see here in just a few minutes, that proved to be a terrible mistake. But as for Abram, uh, God tells him to lift up his eyes and uh, look in every direction, all the land that he could see, from east to west, north to south, all of that land would be given to him and to his descendants forever. And so chapter 13 concludes with this statement uh, that Abram built an altar there to the Lord and he quietly settles down, living a life of faith and trust. And so the next part of his life that we're going to take a look at, uh, it's found here in Genesis chapter 14 where we discover that things don't stay quiet for Abram very, very long. So you've got your Bible there, Genesis chapter 14. Uh, Notice with me beginning in verse number one, and and I'm not going to read all of these verses, and I'll tell you one of the reasons I'm not going to is because this chapter has a lot of names that are absolutely hard to pronounce, and I'm I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce those names, especially on camera. Uh, So I'm just going to reference a few of these verses, and then we'll actually uh, look at this text sort of as a whole. But the Bible says there in verse 1 that in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Ketoleomer, king of El- See, I told you these names are hard to pronounce. I'm already having a hard time with it. Title, king of Goyim. Verse 2 says that these kings made war with Bera, who happened to be the king of Sodom. 
So I'm going to stop right there for just a second, but in the verses that follow, really through verse 10, uh, you've got nine kings of nine separate city-states who, who enter into a conflict with one another there in the Jordan River Valley. And so uh, many of these kings, for a period of about 12 years, the Bible says that they had been paying tribute uh, to this king by the name of Keterleomer, who sort of was the most dominant king in the region. But in the 13th year, after 12 years, a dozen years of paying tribute to this guy, the kings of these city-states in the valley had had enough. And so they, they unite together against Keterleomer, and uh, there's, there's a conflict that uh, follows, and pretty soon the whole region is engulfed in conflict. Now skip on down to verse number 11. Uh, pretty much Keterleomer and his coalition of forces that were on his side uh, basically uh, defeat the king of Sodom and uh, some other kings. And verse 11 says that the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. Now they also take Lot the son of Abram's brother who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. So here you've got this conflict. Uh, Lot is, he's caught up in this conflict that he himself didn't ask for, that he didn't foresee coming. And before he knows it, he is being held prisoner by this Keterle Omer, carried away as a captive. And so Abram is going to hear about it according to verse 13 word comes to him, and verse 14 says that when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. The Bible says that he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants. Now listen to this. And they defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. So Abram and his trained men put the enemy in retreat and run them out of the land and, and pursue them a hundred and a hundred miles or so all the way into what now is modern-day Syria. Verse 16 says that he brought back all the possessions. The word that's used there in Hebrew, translated brought back, it's a Hebrew word, uh, shuv. It's a word that means uh, basically to restore. It's a word that's often used in the Old Testament that's connected with, with redemption. So now think about this. Abram is bringing back all that the enemy had taken. And that included his kinsman Lot with Lot's possessions, the women, and the people. Now, I want to stop there tonight. Uh, I want to speak to you from this subject, lessons from the school of faith, lessons learned in the classroom of faith. And, and really, over the next couple of Wednesday nights, I want to spend some time in this passage, both the first part of chapter 14 and the final part of chapter 14, because there are some wonderful lessons here uh, as it pertains to a life of faith. So Abram has settled down in 
the land of Canaan that God has brought him to. He's had that whole episode in Egypt where he sort of got out of the will of God, but God rescued him from that situation. He's determined to live a quiet life of faith, but things don't stay quiet for him very long because his quiet life is about to be shattered with this regional conflict that, uh, that soon engulfs the whole area. As I read that this week, I, I was thinking uh, the Christian life, it's not, a, it's not a playground, folks. It's a battleground. And largely, the life of faith involves one conflict after another. And just when you think you've gotten through one conflict, things quieten down, they, you, you get settled, and before you know it, there's another conflict uh, that happens around you. The Christian life is not always uh, laughter and smiles. Many times it involves tears that are brought on by the unforeseen. But you see, that's how maturity happens in our lives as believers. Because God uses the conflict that often happens in life, he uses it as his classroom by which he teaches us wonderful truths about himself. He grows and matures our faith as a result. So really there's some rich lessons to be learned for those of us who are at various points along our journey of faith. Rich lessons from Genesis chapter 14. Uh, number one, notice with me that it involves a lesson in hardship. That's really what we see in these first 10 verses of this text. Uh, this chapter begins with a very, very familiar storyline that we know quite well. It's the story of conflict and war. And man, hadn't that been the storyline of human history? War, conflict. Uh, in fact, what happens in this chapter records the first political conflict in the pages of the Bible. Uh, we're told of these kings who are at odds with one another. And this, this, this conflict breaks out among these kings in the Jordan River Valley. These kings unite forces with one another and against some other kings, and the whole region is set on fire as a result. And all of this reminds me that the basic issues of life that you and I are often confronted with, they're not new. You remember what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. But the conflict that we see in this passage, the issues that Abram is dealing with in his life, these issues have been true of humanity since the beginning. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. And so when we stop and we consider biblical history, we discover that the very same things that affect our life today are the very same things that affected the lives of those who lived, even generations before us. This is why the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 15, uh, he says, whatever was written beforehand, referring back to the Old Testament, he says it was written for our learning. He says the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. He said, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition. So there's some valuable lessons that we can learn from the men and women of the Old Testament. This is especially true in the life of Abram, a man who lived 4,000 years ago, 4,000 years removed from this modern era, and yet much of the same issues that Abram 
grapples with in his life, you and I also grapple with in 2020. You say, what are you talking about? Well, think about it. Issues involving family. Abram's got conflict in his family. All of us can identify with that. Uh, Conflict in society around him. He's going to find himself drawn into a conflict that he didn't ask for. All of us can identify with that. Personal adversity, and and on and on it goes. So, So Abram is going to respond, and the way that he responds shows how his faith is growing through all of this. And in particular, when you think about war and political conflict, these are not modern inventions, but it's been a part of man's existence since his fall in the Garden of Eden. You know, you read about the history of warfare, and I know that tactics have changed, and weaponry has changed, and the way that battles are fought are often changed. I was talking with someone this week, and we were talking about just um, the American Civil War. And you think about the American Civil War and the strategy of warfare, really, up until that point, I mean, for hundreds of years, uh, you think about the Revolutionary War, the, the Civil War, the way that they went about fighting those wars on battlefields with one army advancing against another army and, and, and firing upon each other in an open field. That gives way in World War I to trench warfare. That gives way to modern weaponry that, that emerges in the middle part of the 20th century. And now... War still is very much a part of human existence, but now a lot of times war is a matter of just pushing one computer button here on an aircraft carrier that's sitting hundreds and hundreds of miles away from a particular target way out in the middle of the sea. So the mechanisms of war may change, but folks, the reasons behind it, the root cause for it, it's been the same since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. James writes about this in James chapter 4. He says, where do wars and fights come from among you? What's the ultimate source of conflict? He says, does it not come from your desire for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and you don't have. You murder and you covet and you can't obtain. You fight and you war. So he's saying that really the origin of it, it doesn't come from without. He says it comes from within the explosive situations that we find ourselves in as people, they don't begin outwardly, but they begin inwardly. And the ultimate concern of God's word, it's not so much what happens at the national level, it's not so much what happens at the globals, on a global scale, as much as it is what happens on a personal and individual level. Folks, it's the human heart that God is concerned about. No amount of external treatment will ever solve the internal dilemma of sin. So so Abram, there's a conflict that's broke out there in Canaan, and ultimately, behind this military conflict and political strife, there's a lust for power, there's a lust for more, because that's what the people of this world, uh, that's how they live their life. So these kings and their hard-to-pronounce names that are mentioned in this chapter, they're living their life uh, in a very different way than Abram the Hebrew is living his life. 
Uh, Abram is living his life on the basis of what God has promised him. He's living his life on the basis of faith. He's walking by faith. His main concern is not so much the stuff that happens in this life around him. He doesn't have his eyes set on the fool's gold of the world, but that's an altogether different story for these kings whose names are mentioned here. And yet, Abram's going to find himself drawn into the midst of this conflict. Now keep in mind, all of this is happening in the land that God has promised to give Abram. I think sometimes we miss this. I think sometimes our, we imagine uh, Abraham in the promised land and, and uh, all of the land is his and there's no, there's no conflict and there's nothing going on in society around him. No, that's not the case. Because Abram's in this land that God promised to give him and his descendants, but there are all these other power brokers and wicked rulers who are ruling over these city-states in the Jordan River Valley. I love what Chuck Swindoll says about this. He says, interestingly, none of this appears to have bothered Abram. And as far as he was concerned, the land promised by God would eventually come to him regardless of which idol-worshiping king claimed to own it. And he didn't involve himself in Canaan's petty politics. That is, until it affected his own family. So he finds himself in the middle of this conflict that he didn't seek out, but it's one that's dealt to him regardless. And the hardship that he experiences as a result of it only deepens his faith. And it strengthens his resolve as a worshiper of the Lord. And folks, listen to me. The most important lessons in life are learned in the valley of hardship. It's not so much the mountaintop experiences of life where we learn much about who God is and, and, and the life of faith. The lessons that are the most important and the most valuable for our lives as believers happen in the valley of adversity. So there's a lesson in hardship here. Notice secondly, a second lesson, uh, it's a lesson in fellowship. This passage has much to teach us by way of the company that we keep and the importance of it. You get down to verses 11 and 12, and the Bible says that Keterleomer, the enemy and the enemy forces, uh, take all the possessions of Sodom, Gomorrah, all their provisions, and go their way. And this includes Lot, the son of Abram's brother, Abram's nephew. And he was dwelling in Sodom, he was in the wrong place. And as a result, he's taken capture, taken captive. And, and this conflict then draws Abram um, into it. So, so Lot and his family are finding themselves in a very uncomfortable place as they're taken captive by the enemy. Now, before I say anything else about that, we need to go back to what's said about Lot uh, in the previous chapter. Again, remember what's said there in chapter 13, verse 10, as it says that Lot uh, lifted up his eyes and he saw the Jordan River Valley and how it was well watered, reminded him of Egypt. He chose for himself in a very selfish way. And so he chose on the basis of what he saw. He chose uh, to move his family into what seemed to be the best of the land 
because he had a materialistic mindset about him. And the surface glance of the story would seem that he made, well, seemed like he made a very practical choice, a good choice, right? I mean, given the options, who in their right mind would not choose the well-watered valley if they had the choice? But you see, spiritually, there's so much more that's going on here in this passage. That phrase, Lot chose for himself, it's really a statement that shows how selfishness and a lust for the things of this world had filled Lot's heart. There's a difference in him and his uncle. Abram had been in Egypt, yes, but his heart was in Canaan. Lot had been in Egypt. Uh, His heart's not in Canaan, but his heart is in Egypt. And so he abandons Abram there on the hillside, and he moves his tent toward Sodom. Now, you ought to take your Bible and pay close attention to this progression in Lot's life um, in chapters 13 and 14. Uh, If you go up to verse 12 in the 13th chapter, it says that Lot settled among the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. But when you get to verse 12 of the next chapter, here in chapter 14, it says that Lot was dwelling in Sodom. So he starts out by being near Sodom, And by the time we get into chapter 14, he is living in Sodom. I'm reminded of that old gospel song. You've probably heard the lyrics of it, but it says something like this. Sin will always take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And that's a lesson that we see illustrated in Lot's life. Now, I think it's important to point out that there's no evidence in the Bible to suggest that Lot is an unbeliever. In fact, the opposite is stated because it's Peter um, in the New Testament. 2 Peter chapter 2 says that God turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, making them an example to those who would live ungodly. But then Peter says that God delivers righteous Lot. So he's described as being righteous. He's described as being a believer someone who's oppressed by the conduct of the wicked. But then Peter says something like this. He says, for that righteous man dwelling among the inhabitants of Sodom vexed his righteous soul from day to day, hearing and seeing his lawless deeds. The idea is that Lot, because of his worldly mindset, he knew that he was living in a way that really he shouldn't be living among people that he shouldn't be living with and keeping company with, but because of his materialistic desire and his desire to want to prosper, he's a believer who's out of fellowship with God and it vexes or torments his righteous soul. So Lot is not a picture of an unbeliever, but rather he's a picture of a worldly-minded Christian. Someone who knows God, someone who's called to a life of faith, but someone who is primarily influenced by what his eyes see. Someone who knows Jesus but makes decisions on the basis of the wisdom of the world and gets caught up in following the spirit of the age. And so Lot becomes enmeshed in the materialism that characterizes Sodom's society. He made compromises with the world and in so doing he places his family in spiritual danger. And all of those compromises will result in misery in Lot's life. 
So along with this choice to move his family into the valley and eventually into the city, with that choice comes some brand new company that Lot begins to keep. Verse 13 uh, says that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. One person said it this way, does it really matter if the soil is rich if it costs you your integrity? I would rather be poor in the will of God than to have this world's goods and be out of fellowship with God. 1 Corinthians 15, says, be not deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. James chapter four, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wants to be a friend of the world only makes himself an enemy of God. Now there's a very real difference in being a friend of sinners versus being a friend of the world. Jesus is described as being a friend of sinners, but that does not mean that he's a friend of the world. To be a friend of the world is to get caught up in the world's way of thinking to do things the way that the world does things, to allow the world and the culture around you as a believer to influence your value system more so than the word of God. Folks, if we're not careful, we can get caught up in the spirit of the age and become very worldly when Jesus Christ has called us to follow him in discipleship. You know, there's a very real difference in following the shepherd versus following the herd. There are a lot of people who get caught up following the herd, and yet we're to follow the shepherd as believers. So, so a worldly-minded believer, this is someone who's trying to make the climb of faith while holding on to as much of this world's stuff as they possibly can with no thought of reaching the summit. I heard a story about a group of people who were making a climb of a particular mountain in the French Alps. And on the evening before they made their climb, they had a guide who told them that if they were going to reach the top of the mountain, that they needed to do it with only the basic essentials. Uh, they'd have you know, boots on their feet, clothes on their back, they would have a climbing ax, but really nothing else because anything else would just weigh them down in the climb. Well, there was a young climber in the group who uh, was a bit arrogant and said, you know, I really don't agree with that. I think I can make it to the top of the mountain with, uh, with the stuff that I want to bring. And so the guide said, well, if that's your, your attitude, if that's the way you want to go about it, you've got to do it by yourself because I don't want you endangering the rest of the group. So really the next morning before the rest of the group had got ready to go, this young climber sets out on his own to begin his climb. In addition to just the basic essentials that he would need, uh, he determined that he was going to carry a blanket, he was going to take some snacks with him, he was going to take his camera, uh, he wanted a pair of binoculars, and so off he went vowing to make the top of the mountain with the stuff that he had in his hands. Well, as the story goes, as the rest of the group set out to make their climb, they came upon various bits and pieces of the man's luggage that he had gotten rid of uh, on his climb. They found his blanket. As they climbed a little bit further, they found his snacks cast aside. 
A little bit further, they found his camera and his binoculars cast aside. And eventually, whenever they reached the top of the mountain, they found him just the way that the old guide had said, with nothing in his hands to hinder his climb. And the person who told that story said this, so it is in the Christian life. Many who find that they cannot reach the top with all that they hold in their hands, let the top go and pitch their tent in the plain, and the plain is so very full of tents. So many believers get caught up with this world's goods. They get so caught up with all of the issues and the stuff of this life that rather than making the climb of faith, they settle down to live life on the plain. I don't know where you are as a believer tonight. Are you one who's making the climb of faith or are you someone who has settled down uh, for a life of mediocrity, a life of ease, a life of comfort when Jesus Christ calls you to pick up a cross and follow him as his disciple? Folks, one of the reasons that the church in our day has been so weak, it's not because there's a lack of power available, it's because we've been so worldly in so much of our thinking and so much of our living. And let's just be honest, uh, church became non-essential to a lot of professing Christians long before it was ever non-essential to the governors of our states. We determined that, well, I'll serve God in my spare time. I'll give my best time for this pursuit, and I'll give my heart to that pursuit. And before you know it, you can become so worldly-minded as a person. You wind up vexing your righteous soul as a believer, much in the same way that Lot does. I don't want to compromise. I don't want to settle down for life on the plain when the Lord God bids me to climb the mountain of faith. So there's a lesson in hardship here. Uh, there's a lesson in fellowship. But then notice third, that there's a lesson in leadership to be learned from this passage also. All right, after Lot and his family, they're taken captive, which by the way, Lot never saw that coming. When he made his choice to live in Sodom, uh, when he made his choice to settle for a materialistic way of life, he never saw that it would only lead he and his family into a life of bondage, but that's what happens. So he's taken captive. Abram hears about it. Verse 13, uh, he gets his men ready and prepared, and man, they go after the forces of Kedorlaomer. And they confront the forces of the enemy by night. And Abram brings back all the possessions that were taken by the enemy. And he wins the day. So this is, this is interesting. Lot is an illustration of what it means to allow the world to influence our thinking. But Abram is an illustration of something totally different. Uh, he springs into action when he finds out that his kinsman has been taken captive. And in so doing, Abram becomes a picture of rescue. He arms himself. He arms his men. He comes to the rescue of Lot and Lot's family who's in bondage. And he defeats the enemy's forces by skill and stealth. And the interesting thing is that Abram does it all in the enemy's territory. 
Now think about that. Is that not really just the story of the Bible from cover to cover? Is that not what God did in accomplishing your salvation as a believer? I mean, I find here a picture of rescue that we've been given through faith in Jesus Christ. The Son of God left his glory above, stepped into our world, and took on the enemy who held us captive. And on the cross, Jesus defeated the tyranny of sin, and he purchased back, he brought back all that was lost and ruined by the fall. All that was forfeited by Adam was regained by the Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) And so that's a wonderful picture here. Lot is someone who's in need of rescue, and Abram is a picture of the rescuer. You know, the greatest need in a person's life tonight is not to be materially comfortable, but to be spiritually delivered. Humanity's greatest need, folks, it's not political, it's spiritual in nature. And when it comes to spiritual matters, we're not dealing with that which is inconsequential or secondary. The gospel's not primarily about you as a person finding significance in life. It's not a self-improvement plan. And gospel preaching is not dispensing therapy. We're talking about saving someone's soul from the clutches of death itself. That's what God did for you in Jesus Christ. James chapter five says this, brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will deliver his soul from death. It's not about making people more comfortable in life. The gospel is about delivering someone's soul from death. And that's what Jesus Christ has done for us. And that's what the message of the gospel is all about. Now, could perhaps such a loss of evangelistic urgency and fervor in our hearts and lives as believers, could that be one of the reasons why the church has gotten so sidetracked in our day? Because maybe we've forgotten what it means to be lost. Jesus said that the Son of Man came for this purpose, to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus said in Luke 15, what man of you, if he have a hundred sheep and he's lost one of them, does he not leave the 90 and nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he finds it, he puts it on his shoulders and rejoices. Jesus says in that passage that all of heaven rejoices when one sinner, when one sinner repents and comes home. And so if you're saved tonight, it's only because your shepherd left the safety of the fold and made his trek into the wilderness to rescue you. So Abram is a picture of spiritual leadership here. And in many ways, it's a reminder of what God has done for us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you've heard that old hymn that says something along these lines. There were 90 and nine that safely lay in the shelter of the flock. But one was out on the hills away, far off in the cold and dark. Away on the mountains, wild and bare, away from the tender shepherd's care. 
Lord, thou hast here thy ninety and nine. Are they not enough for thee? But the shepherd made answer, this of mine has wandered away from me. And though the road be rough and steep, I go to the desert to find my sheep. But none of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters crossed, nor how dark was the night when the Lord passed through to find the sheep that was lost. Out in the bleak desert he heard its cry, all bleeding and helpless and ready to die. Lord, whence are those blood drops all the way that mark out the mountain's track? They were shed for one who had gone astray so the shepherd could bring him back. Lord, whence are thy hands so rent and torn? They're pierced tonight by many a thorn. And all through the mountains, thunder riven, and up from the rocky steep, there rose a cry to the gate of heaven, Rejoice, I have found my sheep. And the angels echoed around the throne, Rejoice, for the Lord brings back his own. Aren't you grateful for someone who entered into a conflict to rescue you from the clutches of sin and death because that's what Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, has done for you. And folks, if that's what he's done for us, should it not stand to reason that those of us who are his followers, who are called by his name, we live our lives for the same purpose, to seek and to save the lost, to reach out to the backslidden and the broken, the lots of this world, the worldly-minded believers who perhaps have compromised with the world and they've gotten themselves in a heap of trouble because of it, it's not our responsibility to heap judgment upon their shoulders, but to reach out in love and in grace and compassion and to point them to the shepherd of their souls. Lord, in the name of Jesus tonight, thank you for your word. And Lord, thank you for this passage of Scripture that reminds us that we live in a world that is filled with conflict. A reminder, Lord, that political conflict, it's not new to our time, but it's been around since the beginning. And the ultimate reason behind conflict in the world is because of the hearts of humanity. God, we live in a world, there is right and there is wrong. You're a God of truth, and it's our responsibility to stand for what's right and what's true. And sometimes, as far as things that we're told, we don't know what to believe, but Lord, we can always believe your word. And so for those, Lord, who find themselves in the midst of conflict tonight, whatever it may be, whether it be family conflict or personal conflict, Lord, the conflict that we're in right now as a country. We're a divided nation, Lord. A divided nation. And we can deal with symptoms or we can speak to the root cause of conflict and it's sin in the heart. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is the remedy. And Lord, you're in the life-changing business. And nothing will transform a society any more than people in that society on the individual level getting right with God, being saved, rescued from the clutches of sin and death. And that's my prayer tonight, Lord. The issues of racism and political division and the corruption 
that parades itself on our social media feeds and our television screens, all of this is symptomatic of a greater, greater problem. And it's the human heart. But Lord, you're in the business of giving new hearts. And that's what you do through Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray that you take these truths tonight and seal them up in our hearts. Use the hardships of life to make us more and more like your son. We don't want to be worldly-minded people, but Lord, we want to have our eyes on heaven. And those who are the most heavenly-minded are the most worldly good. So we love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.